Chapter Fourteen of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Five, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Fourteen: Roanoke Island. Mention has been made of the very peculiar seafront of the state of North Carolina. Other states on the Atlantic have, like it, the narrow fringe of sandbank constituting the extreme outer coast, within which lies a network of inlets, islands, bayous, and rivers. But North Carolina, unlike the rest, contains behind this false coast a magnificent crescent-shaped inland sea, whose sweeping outline covers more than a degree of latitude. This vast watersheet has two separate names. The upper or northern part, called Albemarle Sound, extends sixty miles west into the mainland, and with a width of fifteen miles near the ocean, and tapering to a point at the entrance of the Chowan River. The lower or southern part, called Pamlico Sound, is perhaps twice as large, extending eighty miles to the southwest, having a width of from ten to thirty miles, and a depth of twenty feet, varied by shoals. Both sounds would probably have been combined under a single name, were it not that nearly midway of the arc lies Roanoke Island, twelve miles long and three miles wide, indicating a division, though by no means separating them, for their waters remain connected by the narrower Croton Sound on the west and Roanoke Sound on the east of the island. When Forts Hatteras and Clark were captured by the Union forces on the 29th of August, 1861, the Confederates fixed upon Roanoke Island as the nearest defensible point, and began the erection of batteries to hold the narrow channels. While the possession of the forts at Hatteras Inlet was of vast importance to the Union blockading fleet, it soon became evident that other lodgments must be made to afford full control of the interior waters of North Carolina. The Hatteras forts, built on the narrow banks of the outer coastline, were not very defensible. In high water they were nearly submerged, and there was constant danger that they might be seriously damaged by the severe storms frequent on that coast. Officers of good judgment reported that they formed no suitable base for operations into the interior, and recommended the capture and occupation of Roanoke Island. Its strategic value was so evident that it needed little urging upon the attention of the government. It would form a safe and useful base of operations. It would render blockade running in that locality well-nigh impossible, more important than all, the complete occupation of the interior coast would open a practicable back door to Richmond. Roanoke Island, wrote the local rebel commander, is the key of one-third of North Carolina, and whose occupancy by the enemy would enable him to reach the great railroad from Richmond to New Orleans. Chance favored the gradual growth of an expedition for this work. During the summer and autumn of 1861, while McClellan was so tediously organizing his great army, refusing to allow detachments and postponing all movements, the Potomac River fell into a condition of quasi-blockade from rebel batteries hastily established at eligible points, and which, though from time to time shelled out and driven away, persistently reappeared to endanger navigation. For several months, says the report of the Secretary of the Navy, the commerce on this important avenue to the national capital was almost entirely suspended, though at no time was the passage of our armed naval vessels prevented. General McClellan felt unwilling or unable to relieve this stress by a forward movement. 
yet not entirely insensible to such a military disgrace almost at the tent doors of the army he took refuge in a halfway measure suggested by general ambrose e burnside his classmate and intimate friend and recommended the formation of a coast division with suitable vessels such as might be enlisted and collected from the various seacoast towns of new england the officers and men to be sufficiently conversant with boat service to manage steamers sailing vessels surf boats etc in short to be as expert in the duty of the sailor as of the soldier the whole to form an integral part of the army of the potomac but specially intended for operation in the inlets of the chesapeake bay and potomac river it was in the day of mcclellan's highest popularity when the government eagerly gratified his slightest wish accordingly general burnside was sent to carry out his own suggestion and succeeded without difficulty in raising the desired force the selection of commander was not injudicious burnside was a rhode islander and also a graduate of west point who had hitherto been singularly favored in attracting popular admiration and applause the governors of the states to which he was sent seconded his mission with praiseworthy zeal before he had finished his task wider designs were matured by the government and he was entrusted with the most important duty of leading his amphibious coast division to the waters of north carolina his regiments began assembling at annapolis early in november but incurring the usual delays the month of december passed before his whole force proceeded to his second rendezvous at fort monroe in complete preparation to set sail here also he was joined by a fleet of twenty vessels of war under command of flag officer goldsboro detailed to accompany and assist him general mcclellan gave burnside his final orders on january seventh eighteen sixty two directing him to assume command of the department of north carolina which had been created including the hatteras forts his instructions were first to seize and hold roanoke island then to capture new Bern, next to attempt the capture of fort macon and open the harbor of beaufort also if possible to penetrate into the interior from new Bern and seize the railroad at goldsboro the whole expedition went to sea from fort monroe on the evening of january eleventh eighteen sixty two burnside's army numbered a total of twelve thousand eight hundred and twenty nine men divided into three brigades respectively under generals john g foster jesse l reno and john g park these with their supplies were embarked on a motley collection of transports amounting to a hundred in number steamers schooners tugboats every description of craft that was deemed seaworthy and which could be made useful in the shadow north carolina sounds the whole fleet sailed under sealed orders which were opened when the vessels were twenty miles from fort monroe it was only a favorable day's run from the rendezvous to the hatteras forts and during that part of the voyage the fleet had the benefit of good weather but before the ships began to assemble the sea was so boisterous that there was great difficulty in passing through hatteras inlet some seventy of the vessels managed to get in behind the comparative shelter of the outer coast the others were compelled to encounter the fury of a storm which set in and which the general states continued almost incessantly twenty-eight days three steamers and half a dozen sailing vessels were lost but strange to say only three lives the remaining ships were by great exertion got through the inlet a few days after the arrival once inside another trouble was at hand a difficult bar called the bulkhead with only seven and a half feet of water had to be crossed and nearly a month of delay occurred in getting the expedition over this obstruction 
On the 6th of February, the fleet renewed its advance, numbering 17 ships of war, carrying 48 guns and 7,500 troops. The remainder of the force was left behind at Hatteras. The 38 miles of intervening distance were soon passed over. On the evening of February 7, the men of war engaged the shore batteries on Roanoke Island. During the long delay in the advance, the enemy had become thoroughly informed of the expected attack and strengthened their position by every available device. At best, however, it proved what the rebel commander called it, an unequal conflict. The principal defenses consisted of several strong forts on the northern end of the island, a row of piles and sunken vessels to obstruct the ship channel in Croton Sound, and a fleet of seven rebel gunboats stationed behind it. While Goldsboro, with his war vessels, was engaging these on the afternoon of the 7th, the Army Division was landed without serious resistance near Ashby's Harbor, midway of the island. The island is long and narrow, and a principal road runs along the middle of it from south to north. Not far above the landing place, what were supposed to be impenetrable swamps approached the road on either side, leaving it a mere causeway. Across this causeway the rebels erected a strong breastwork and rifle pits to the right and left. A force of infantry, variously estimated at from one to two thousand, supported this apparently serious obstruction. Early on the morning of the 8th, the Union troops advanced up the road. Foster, the senior brigadier general, in the center, Park on the right and Reno on the left. While Foster engaged the main work at the causeway with field pieces, the other brigade commanders respectively undertook to flank it, through the swamps to the right and left. Two hours passed in this effort, and finally Reno and his men, forcing their way in the water waist-deep amid thick, tangled underbrush, succeeded in getting through the swamp on the left and occupying a fire on the right and rear of the enemy's battery. Park had also nearly succeeded in turning the position on the other side. A simultaneous assault by Foster in front and Reno against the rebel right drove the enemy from their guns in precipitate confusion. It was a victory of persistent and stubborn energy, rather than severe fighting. The total loss on the Union side was five officers and 32 men killed, and 10 officers and 204 men wounded. The reported rebel loss was 23 killed and 58 wounded. The battle at this point decided the fate of the island. The Union troops followed the retreating enemy to the northern end with such promptness and vigor that they had no time or opportunity for further resistance. The garrisons abandoned the forts and joined the flying column. Having no transports at hand in which to escape, and finding himself surrounded, Colonel Shaw, the rebel commander, sent a flag of truce to make a complete surrender. The fruits of the day's fight, says Foster's report, were the whole island of Roanoke, with its five forts, 32 guns, 3,000 stands of arms, and 2,700 prisoners. Ex-Governor Henry A. Wise of Virginia, upon whom, as district commander, the responsibility of this Confederate disaster fell most heavily at the time, made the following striking summary of the strategic importance of the capture of Roanoke Island. It unlocked two sounds, Albemarle and Currituck, eight rivers, the north, west, Pasquotank, Perquimans, Little, Chowan, Roanoke, and Alligator, four canals, the Albemarle and Chesapeake, Dismal Swamp, Northwest, and Suffolk, and two railroads, the Petersburg and Norfolk, and the Seaboard and Roanoke. It guarded more than four-fifths of all Norfolk's supplies of corn, 
pork, and forage, and it cut the command of General Hooger off from all its most efficient transportation. It endangers the subsistence of his whole army, threatens the navy yard at Gosport, and to cut off Norfolk from Richmond, and both from railroad communication with the South. It lodges the enemy in a safe harbor from the storms of Hatteras, gives them a rendezvous, and large, rich range of supplies, and the command of the seaboard from Oregon Inlet to Cape Henry. However interesting might be the detailed narrative, it will require more pages than can be devoted to it to describe how the natural fruits of the capture of Roanoke Island were in part gathered by successive expeditions within the North Carolina Sounds during the remainder of the year 1862. They can only be mentioned here in the briefest possible summary. The rebel fleet, which retreated, was followed by a detachment of Goldsboro's ships, under Commander Rowan, into the Pasquotank River towards Elizabeth City, where on February 10 he completely annihilated it, capturing one steamer, burning and destroying five others, and occupying Elizabeth City and other points. Carrying out the original instructions, another expedition, naval and military, sailed from Roanoke Island against the town of New Bern on the News River, one of the southern affluents of Pamlico Sound, where a combined attack on the 14th of March effected a quick reduction of the very considerable defense at that place. The fruits of the victory at New Bern, reports General Foster, were the richest town in North Carolina. One steamer, 200 prisoners, 46 heavy guns, 18 field pieces, several hundred stands of arms, the command of the railroad, the cutting off from supplies of the garrison at Fort Macon, with a prospective capture of that work, and the facilities of the railroad for our advance on Goldsboro. A small expedition also went, March 20th and 21st, up the Pamlico River, where the town of Washington was occupied. More important than either of the foregoing was the expedition under command of Brigadier General Park against Fort Macon. Guarding the harbor of Beaufort, North Carolina, and its successful investment, siege, and capture on the 26th of April, one of those brilliant engineering feats which throughout the war attested the high skill and accomplishments of the educated officers of the regular army. In addition to these principal events, there occurred a score or more of small expeditions, reconnaissances, skirmishes, which there is not room to even enumerate. It will thus be seen that the success of the parent expedition, led by Burnside against Roanoke Island, quickly resulted in a secondary group of local victories which gave the Union forces command of the entire interior coasts of North Carolina. Of the several designs mentioned in McClellan's original instructions, as the objects of the Burnside expedition, all were accomplished save the single one of an advance from New Bern to Goldsboro to seize one of the important southern railroads. This had necessarily to await the preliminary work to which the Army and Navy next devoted themselves, and required also an increase of force to hold the captured places and guard communications. Before the needful reinforcements were accumulated, the Goldsboro expedition was unfortunately rendered impossible by an unexpected change in the tide of Union victories. Failure and disaster fell upon McClellan's army in Virginia to such a degree that Burnside, with all the troops he could bring with him, was recalled, early in July, from North Carolina to the James River. Nevertheless, the points already gained in Albemarle and Pamlico Sounds were generally held, and through the remainder of the war their occupation contributed essentially, in various ways, to the further advance of the Union arms. Simultaneously with the successes in North Carolina, other important victories attended the military and naval operations along the Atlantic coast. 
the hold which had been gained at port royal south carolina and the adjacent sea islands was greatly extended and strengthened notably in the siege and capture of fort pulaski at the mouth of the savannah river pulaski like macon was one of the old government forts built for coast protection which during the secession period were first seized and occupied by state troops and afterwards turned over to the control and use of the confederate authorities fort pulaski stood in a strong position on cockspur island georgia commanding both channels of the savannah river it was a brick work with walls seven and a half feet thick and twenty-five feet high with one tier of guns in casemate and one and barbette the island it stood on was wholly a marsh one mile long and a half mile wide the neighboring islands were also mere marshes the possibility of reducing the fort began to be studied soon after port royal was captured and the work formally commenced about the beginning of february the ground to operate upon was described as a soft unctuous mud free of grit or sand and incapable of supporting a heavy weight even in the most elevated places the partially dry crust is but three or four inches in depth the substratum being a semi-fluid mud which is agitated like jelly by the falling of even small bodies upon it like the jumping of men or ramming of earth a pole or an oar can be forced into it with ease to the depth of twelve or fifteen feet in most places the resistance diminishes with increase of penetration men walking over it are partially sustained by the roots of reeds and grass and sink in only five or six inches when this top support gives way they go down from two to two and a half feet and in some places much farther the problem was to transport the heavy material and guns about a mile and establish batteries in such a locality working without noise in the darkness of night it was necessary first to construct a causeway resting on fascines and brushwood in positions within range of the effective fire of the fort no one says the report except an eye-witness can form any but a faint conception of the herculean labor by which mortars of eight and a half tons weight and columbades but a trifle lighter were moved in the dead of night over a narrow causeway bordered by swamps on either side and liable at any moment to be overturned and buried in the mud beyond reach two hundred and fifty men were barely sufficient to move a single piece on sling carts the men were not allowed to speak above a whisper and were guided by the notes of a whistle yet the task was pursued with such industry that on the ninth of april eleven batteries comprising thirty-six guns were ready to open fire at distances varying from sixteen hundred and fifty to thirty four hundred yards and the fort was summoned to surrender at sunrise on the morning of april tenth a refusal having been received the bombardment was begun the fort making a vigorous reply the surprising and hitherto unknown effectiveness of rifled guns and modern projectiles was quickly proved by two o'clock of the second day's bombardment the fort was so far damaged by a large breach and the dismounting of eleven of its guns as to compel its surrender which took place that afternoon april eleventh eighteen sixty two the armament of the fort was forty-eight guns its garrison of three hundred and eighty-five men were made prisoners general quincy a gilmore conducted the siege operations general david hunter being at that time in command of the department of the south it will be remembered that when port royal was captured in the previous autumn it was the intention and expectation of the government that the forces engaged in that enterprise should proceed at once in an attempt to repossess and occupy the whole florida coast for reasons heretofore mentioned that project could not then be immediately carried out 
The design, however, was not abandoned, and with the opening of the year 1862, preparations were made to renew the undertaking. Accordingly, an expedition sailed from Port Royal during the month of March, consisting of 19 ships of war, under flag officer Samuel F. Dupont, and a few transports, carrying a brigade of volunteers, under General H.G. Wright, which, within a few days and without serious resistance, occupied, and thereafter securely held, the whole remaining Atlantic coast southward, including Brunswick, Fort Clinch, Fernandina, Cumberland Island and Sound, Amelia Sound, Jacksonville, and St. Augustine. Nor did the triumphs of the Navy end here. While this reduction and repossession of the Atlantic coast was going on, another movement, more formidable in its preparation and more brilliant in its successes, was in progress. End of chapter 14